Um, and when I was a kid, Saturday morning was sacred. You know, it was a ritual. It was a, it was a holy time that my own children will never experience, I realized after careful consideration. Because on Saturday morning, the hierarchy of the family household became reversed. You know, for five days, my parents were the first to rise. They were active and productive before the sun peered over the eastern horizon. And while three children went on dreaming in silent dread of another school day and the misery therein, and, uh, and sure, on Sunday, we, we slept a bit before church in, in my house personally, but Saturday was the true day of holy observance. Um, while daylight was still a pink haze, my brother and I would creep from our respective twin beds and we would begin the ritual. First, to the TV guide. Um, I, I tried to find a TV guide cover from the year that I'm, or around the era that I was talking about, and uh, this one struck me as quite funny and ugly. So there it is. Um, then, you know, through the silent or the eerily silent house even, careful not to wake our parents, we made our way to the kitchen to prepare the appointed feast, which for, for us was, you know, Pop-Tarts and sugary cereal and toaster strudels, which are amazing and horrible for you. And in those days, maybe it's still like this. If it, can, does TV Guide continue to exist? Is it still out there? Yeah, it does. Then maybe it's still like this, but at the time, it was kind of like uh, after the articles and little updates, there was a spreadsheet that sort of broke out into a grid what was going to happen on television on the, the four networks at the time. Um, and we would always open to Saturday morning around 8 a.m., and we would begin to chart a path forward for that day. Um, begin, you know, the Saturday morning cartoons. There were like He-Man and the Masters of the Universe and Thundercats and Ghostbusters and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, DuckTales, all that stuff. Heck, man, there were, even, <laughs> there were even Saturday morning cartoon versions of Beetlejuice for some reason, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, uh, MC Hammer, who was actually on that slide. MC Hammer had a Saturday morning cartoon, short-lived, but still. And we would sit there in our pajamas and we would feast and skip channel to channel for hours while our parents, I'm sure, gratefully slept one show after another before noon arrived, and then we'd head outside to explore in the woods with our imaginations full and, you know, battle space aliens and draft plans for a new fort that I'm sure would never come to fruition or whatever. Um, and in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, advertisements operated in much the same way as they do today. They were largely curated and catered to particular audiences. So if you're watching a certain type of show, you get a certain set of ads. And the Saturday morning lineup yielded its fair share of like toy commercials. You know, two kids are out in the forest behind the house being like, shoot it, you know, that kind of thing. There were images of Ronald McDonald's evil grin, and there were school supplies shaped like Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, whatever it might be. But I remember this recurring ad that would always complicate the ceremony of Saturday, Saturday morning because it was for something that was at that time, it has since renamed, but at that time it was called the Christian Children's Fund. And a child, uh, it was a child sponsorship organization, not unlike, you know, your World Vision or Compassion International. Uh, the Christian Children Fund, Christian Children's Fund ads typically featured this kindly looking bearded man who would stroll through impoverished villages of the developing world. And uh, he would point to a scene, you know, in which like flies crawled over the faces of small children with distended abdomens and nearly naked boys and girls rummaging through heaps of refuse and mothers who were rocking skeletal infants in their arms. And I would think, man, what a drag. Uh, here I am with a bowl of, you know, Count Chocula and I'm waiting for Muppet Babies or whatever it is. And, and I'm having to confront the uncomfortable reality of suffering elsewhere in the world, disrupting my comfort somehow. Presumably at the exact same moment, there were children dying of exposure, of starvation, of entirely treatable illnesses. Elsewhere in the world, in other words, people are very poor. 
And as a child born into what is by comparison a, a very wealthy economic status, this reality is a near impossible one to comprehend. Attempts to do so are uncomfortable and inconvenient. And these advertisements were designed to generate results. The viewer who would be, uh, you know, they would empathize or they would become shocked or, or perhaps uh, appalled by the conditions they were exposed to or compelled by what was possible by a simple act of giving to rescue a child from poverty via financial sponsorship. And that is obviously a very good thing, just to be clear. Uh, and I understood that. Even then, I was like, oh, that's cool. They're doing something. I appreciate that. But I would sit there in the knowledge that while I sat with my cereal in my comfortable home and joining my morning elsewhere in the world, kids were starving on the same exact Saturday morning, you know, time zone difference and all that. But on Saturday morning, other kids elsewhere in the world had no cereal, no house, no Saturday morning cartoons. And that wasn't right. Something about it just wasn't right, even in my small childhood mind. Now, of course, most or all of us are, are, are no longer children, and though by any thoughtful analysis, we do indeed make up some of the wealthiest people in the world, a world in which over one billion people live on less than one dollar per day, and about three billion people live on less than two dollars per day. Most of us, if not all of us, live on quite a bit more than that, and it's not that we don't care about injustice in the world. Many of us don't know how to care about injustice in the world. And of course, it's no secret that throughout the entirety of the Bible, God's concern for the poor is abundantly evident. In God's economy, those with much are to sacrifice their excess, even their own comfort, for the sake of those with very little. God not only encourages this, he commands this. Look at this from the Torah, Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am Yahweh, God. Or this from Deuteronomy. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israel, Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Remember, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. In the Bible, God even arranges something that was alluded to in this passage. God even arranges Israel's entire economic system to forgive debts every seven years. It was a system concerned for the poor and the oppressed, those on the margins of society. But in the Bible, doing justice is about more than economic redistribution alone. When you read the story of the scriptures, you discover a God who stands in solidarity with the poor. He's actually on their side. And of course, God invites us to become like him. Look at these passages from Psalms and Proverbs. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. In other words, the way that we treat the poor is the, God receives that as treatment unto himself. Because the poor are plundered and the needy grown, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. And of course, God's heart for the poor permeates the New Testament as well. Look at this from 1 John. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? 
Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And honestly, we could go on and on and on. My point is this idea that God is deeply concerned for the poor and that those with much should care for those with little. That's not some liberal or political left or socialist agenda. It is a clear, overt reality screaming from the whole of the entire biblical narrative. But what's interesting is that in the Bible, the ancient practice of fasting is connected to God's heart for the poor. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah 58. If you uh, are just joining us this evening, tonight we are actually concluding a short teaching series on the ancient spiritual discipline of fasting. Uh, because our church is after much more than simply talking about and singing songs about Jesus, though both are excellent, we believe in those 100%, but we wanna learn the teachings of Jesus and then put them into practice together. We wanna actually do something about all this stuff that we're filling our minds and our hearts with on a Sunday evening. So for us, that looks like taking on a new spiritual discipline or a principle of emotional health every few months together. We talk about them a bit here on Sunday nights and then we spread out into smaller groups that we call Van City Communities and we actually give them a shot. And fasting is an example of how we do that. So, in theory, some of you guys uh, may have fasted this past week, and that's incredible because though fasting is well represented throughout the entire Bible, it's represented in the life and in the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, it's well represented in the history of the church, most modern Western Christians don't know why they would fast or how they would do it, and so they simply don't. And I'm not saying that as a, a rebuke. I actually was in that camp myself. So this practice has been, for us at Van City, one of rediscovery. We are rediscovering one of the most valuable ancient disciplines available to apprentices of Jesus. So we spent the first week talking about fasting as a means of growing in discipline, or we called it starving the flesh, the broken part of you, to feed the spirit, the redeemed part of you. Last week we talked about fasting as a way that we pray with our entire bodies. This week we're gonna talk about fasting as a way disciples of Jesus stand in solidarity with the poor. You guys ready for one last lap around the fasting thing? You guys, yeah? Okay, great, thank you. Let's, uh, this brings us to Isaiah 58. And this passage uh, has an interesting context before we read it. See, for us, the journey of learning and practicing the spiritual disciplines, like I said, has largely been a journey of discovery. We're learning it for the first time, at least most of us are. But for the people of Isaiah, the people of Israel, in Isaiah 58, disciplined religious observance is a no-brainer. They've got that completely down. Israel was, at this point, known for a sort of intense outward spirituality, and yet in steps the prophet Isaiah with a rather intense critique of them. Let's read Isaiah 58, beginning with verse one. Shout it aloud, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day, they seek me out. This is God speaking. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and yet, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet, on the day of your fasting, God says to them, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. So, though the people of Israel are fasting, Yahweh takes issue with their spirituality as a whole, particularly their lack of concern for one another. And the text goes on, verse five. 
Is this the kind of fast I have chosen, only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and, to not, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then... Your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and Yahweh will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. Which is a beautiful passage. And Now, one might read this, a passage like this one and conclude, oh, I get it, so God doesn't want his people to fast per se. He just wants the active pursuit of justice. But of course, that's complicated because we know that the people of God continued to fast, often encouraged to do so by God himself. God continues to respond to fasting in the scriptures. Jesus fasted, as did his disciples, as did the early church. What Isaiah is getting at is not an abandonment of the spiritual discipline of fasting, but a redefining of what fasting is all about. Dorothy Day, who is this radical, subversive, nonviolent Catholic woman, she famously said this, I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. Which is a fantastic quote, you know, it's quite a zinger. But if you're anything like me, your mind immediately gravitates to someone for whom you have animosity or, you know, relational discord. That is, the person I love the least is my enemy. Um, someone with whom I have beef, so to speak. And sure, the idea absolutely applies on that level. But remember, in the scriptures, God's idea of love is more than just the absent or the absence or opposite of relational discord. For Jesus, love is an active gesture of consistent self-sacrifice for the other. In this sense, the person I love the least is the one for whom I am not sacrificing, the poor person that I ignore, the injustice that I overlook or participate in with my shopping decisions. I really only love God as much as the person I love the least. And really, Dorothy Day is essentially paraphrasing Jesus, who said this in Matthew 25, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was, stranger. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I, was needed, I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick in prison and you did not look after me. They also, they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick and in prison and did not help you? And Jesus will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Which brings us back to Isaiah 58. See, in Isaiah's estimation, Israel's spirituality had become disastrously insular. It was an inward focus on the individual's spirituality. And I would argue American Christianity kind of operates in much the same way with an emphasis on personal salvation, personal relationship with Jesus, your personal Lord and Savior. We love terms like that. So Isaiah is reminding God's people of God's tremendous concern for the other, the person outside of their insular spiritual experience, even in the art of fasting. Think about the ideas we've unpacked over the last couple of weeks. Fasting is a way that we respond to sacred moments in our lives and in the world. It's a way that we seek to enter into what God thinks about death, about war, about disaster, famine, tragedy, and so on. 
And these ways, we are using fasting to look beyond ourselves. It's about something we do so that we can understand something outside of ourselves. And in the same way, when God's people are struck or grieved or even simply exposed to poverty and injustice, they can respond with fasting, something the church has historically done. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight calls this type of fasting body poverty. He says it like this, when God's people look around and fail to see justice and righteousness and salvation and deliverance, and instead they see poverty and injustice, God's people should respond in body poverty or fasting. See, Isaiah rebukes Israel because their fasting did not lead them beyond their own selves. Fasting that does not lead to consideration for others misses the point. Another way of putting it is with the, this imaginary scenario. A disciple of Jesus is agonizing over injustice in the world. You know, they see the commercial on Saturday morning, whatever it is, and they cry out to God, man, shouldn't you do something about this? Why have you let it, why have you let it get so bad? And God answers, I have done something about this. I made you. There are often ways in which you evolve and change over time based on the things that you do. I've mentioned before that uh, I enjoy this game called Dungeons and Dragons. Very cool, very hip, you should try it out. But uh, I did not mention at that time, I believe that my wife enjoys this game as well, which is more surprising coming from her than it is for me. You'd be like, oh yeah, that guy probably plays Dungeons and Dragons. But then you're like, Abby, really? Um, and before you dismiss this as, you know, some people be like, oh, she's probably humoring him. She's just trying to be nice. Let me assure you. Uh, just last week, she spent a good, she's downstairs helping with the kids right now, and I knew that, so I purposefully prepared this in her absence. Um, she spent a good chunk of her free time upgrading her character, who she calls uh, Vera Swordstar. Ask her about that. Um, she was selecting new spells. She had the official handbook. She was going on through it. And, uh, and she was working that out in this group text with other people who play the game. And it was so funny to me that I will now present some of them <laughs> to you. Here's some of that conversation. Abby says, I I'm thinking Dimension Door for my fourth level slot. Any input? You can teleport up to 500 feet, so to any space you can see. To which my, our very own Michael Dumont says, that sounds like it would be useful. That sounds great. And then Abby says, does anyone currently have hold person? That's another spell. The conversation goes on. Gavin says, I have it. She says, okay, so I probably don't need it to. You know, just practical stuff. She says, also, I changed the ability to, I have the ability to change my sorcerer's origin at this level. So I'm changing it to be draconic instead of wild magic because I've never used the wild magic stuff. And Patrick just says, nice. <laughs> <laughs> and then our friend Matt says maybe someone else should learn that spell too and Abby says hold on now that's a fourth level spell slot to which Matt says oh wait she didn't level up yet dang it the conversation goes on and Matt says you should consider this type of stuff I won't bore you with the long thing there and Abby says I'm not wild magic anymore I changed to draconic she just said that it changed it has cooler features and she goes on to defend her decision I'm going to need some backstory tonight to explain why, when we were all awake, you suddenly covered in scales and all dragon-looking. What did you do while we were sleeping? She said, I'm not turning into a dragon. I had a gold dragon ancestor, so I'm fiery. The point is, <laughs> the point is that, believe me, this is a way of talking in a frame of mind that one does not acquire by natural means. She did not just suddenly lapse into this. It took work and a lot of practice to get there. And it happened over a really long period of time. But now she thinks that way without effort. She's flipping through the book being like, you know, draconic sounds better than wild magic. I'm changing. Frankly, I don't even understand some of the stuff that she's talking about. 
when we, all that to say, yes, I just used that because it was funny, but all that to say, part of the reason that we engage in spiritual disciplines is that when you actually put things into practice, to be drawn into God's heart and God's mind, to know God better, to adopt his way of thinking, you should probably expect to discover that suddenly you've begun to think differently. Over time, you find yourself talking and behaving in a way that's unique to your natural innate sense of talking and behaving. And you will realize that you have become troubled by the things that trouble God. When you spend more time in the presence of God, getting to know the heart of God, pouring yourself out to and learning about the heart of God, the mind of God, you will find that you've begun to adopt the heart of God, the mind of God, and you are now troubled by the things that trouble God. And as we've learned throughout the series, we are more than just our hearts or you know, what we think of our feeling, our emotional mind, and we're more than our minds, our intellectual space. We respond to God with more than just our hearts and our minds. We respond with our entire bodies. We talked about the way that when you worship and someone might put their hands in the air, there's actually a reason for that. You are responding outwardly to what you're thinking and feeling, that you are worshiping God, that you're reaching for whatever it might be. You're drawing your body into a response that you feel innately or sense in your mind because God has made you not just a mind and a heart. He's made you a body. You are not just a, uh, a heart and a mind in a body. You are a heart, a mind, and a body. And of course, that means that you, can, you, as a disciple of Jesus, do justice actively. You actually go out of your way in the language of the scripture we read just a moment ago, not just with your words and with your thinking, but in, in deeds, you do justice. But historically, the church has also used fasting as a means of, dis- of responding to injustice in the world. The idea is that it is self-impoverishment as a response to the impoverishment of others. In Isaiah 58, there are two companions to the art of fasting. The first is that fasting is to be converted into justice and solidarity with other people. And the second is that fasting leads to holiness, meaning as you go without food in order to better understand how God feels about poverty, you are made more like God in the process. Let's unpack each of those a bit in detail before we conclude uh, the teaching this evening. First, fasting becomes a means to pursue justice and solidarity with the poor. Interestingly, uh, the early church understood this in a tremendously practical way. An early Christian writing drafted prior to the second century called The Shepherd of Hermas offers advice on how fasting can be converted into generosity. So the idea is that after refraining from bread and water or food and drink, the Christian is to them Estimate the cost of the food you would have eaten on that day and give that amount to a widow or orphan or someone in need. Be humble in this way that the one who receives something because of your humility may fill his own soul and pray to the Lord for you. A few hundred years later, Augustine advised something similar, saying this, fasting chastens yourself. It does not refresh others. Your distress will profit you if you afford comfort to others. How many poor can be filled with the breakfast we have this day given up? Around that same time, one writer said this, let us fast in such a way that we lavish our lunches on the poor so that we may not store up in our purses what we intended to eat, but rather in the stomachs of the poor. Fasting as an idea of justice is also paired with solidarity. Uh, And this is something that's a bit more challenging to wrap our heads around. In one sense, it really is as simple as it sounds. There There are those who go without. 
So there are occasions on which the disciple of Jesus voluntarily chooses to go without in order to identify with those who live this way. So think of the way that uh, the easiest analogy I can come up with is the way that sometimes those who are close to those who are undergoing chemotherapy will sometimes voluntarily shave their own heads as a gesture of solidarity with the person who is in chemo. Now, does a healthy person shaving their head cure cancer? Of course not. Does it make chemo any easier? Probably not, I'm guessing. But this gesture of solidarity says to that person, I'm with you. No, I do not understand in full. I can't, but I am here to stand with you in solidarity. And this gesture is inwardly effective as much as it is outwardly effective. Think about it. Like as silly as it sounds in the grand scheme of things, to shave one's head, for, for most people uh, who do not ordinarily do so, is something that one doesn't do lightly. It actually takes a bit of a sacrifice. As funny and vain as that sounds, it does. And the cost of that gesture will look them back in the mirror for you know, the foreseeable future when you make the decision to shave your head. Now, no shaving your head does not give you a sense of what it means to suffer through cancer or chemo, but in its own small way, it puts you through something in order to stand in solidarity with someone with whom in many ways you cannot relate. And similarly, fasting, to stand in solidarity with the poor, will not actively resolve poverty. It will not provide you know, the faster with a deep, meaningful sense of what it means to be impoverished in the true sense, but it puts you through something in order to stand in solidarity with the poor. And listen to me for a moment. This is important when we consider the likelihood that we have in some way become complicit in the world's poverty, knowingly or unknowingly. When you buy clothes sewn and coffee farmed by women and children, bought and sold into slavery, knowingly or unknowingly, when we buy food and electronics made in uh, factories that abuse people, uh, when we buy food that was, that was made in farms that destroy creation and poison other countries and peoples, when we thoughtlessly enjoy excess with no regard for those who have little or nothing all around us, all of this, I'm not saying this is a guilt trip, but just as an eye-opener, all of this makes us, in some sense, complicit in systems that objectify and exploit the poor and the vulnerable, which is something that God cares deeply about. And when we come to understand our complicity in the poverty of the world as a result of our own greed, our own materialism, our own ignorance, the shopping decisions that we've made, when we look out on a world that has been ravaged by suffering and injustice and we realize there are so many who regularly go hungry and find that we have no empathy for their plight, the disciple of Jesus can respond to that moment, even that moment of numbness, with fasting in order to put themselves voluntarily through something to identify with the poor. And in doing so, you are entering into the grief and suffering of other people and of God who cares deeply for the poor and is on their side. Honestly, you know, a great many of us probably know what it means to feel like a sudden surge of, of sorrow or grief or empathy when we read something tragic in the news and when we feel we're indifferent or in complicit, you know, we're complicit in the suffering of the world, but so often we don't do anything about it. And it's not because we're just so like uh, hard-hearted and we don't want to and we're all just so lazy all the time. Often we don't know what to do about it. So fasting is one way, not the only way, but one way that we can seize that moment 
and respond to that feeling of grief and injustice. Even me as a kid saying, hey, that isn't right. It shouldn't be that way. You respond to that moment with your entire body, not just praying for the poor, but responding physically as well as emotionally and mentally so that we will be formed in the process. Uh, Robert Downey Jr., uh, an actor, uh, popularized an idiom that he allegedly learned from Mel Gibson while recovering from years of substance abuse. Apparently, Mel Gibson, who cared for Robert Downey Jr. when he was down and out, um, taught him that one dimension of recovery involved confronting and accepting responsibility for your mistakes. And uh, more than that, to sort of stare into the face of your own brokenness without flinching so that you can come to terms with the ugly parts of you, your, your brokenness, what the New Testament calls your flesh. Uh, Mel Gibson called it hugging the cactus. Part of what it means to fast sometimes has to do with, frankly, hugging the cactus, so to speak. So in Isaiah 58, the first companion of fasting is that it is to be converted into justice and solidarity with others, whether that means actually practically setting money aside, you would have spent on food to do justice work, and also to stand in solidarity, put yourself through something voluntarily to understand what you could not understand otherwise. And second, the idea is that fasting leads to holiness. When you engage in what Scott McKnight calls body poverty, when you put yourself through something in order to stand in solidarity with someone else, when you hug the cactus, so to speak, you are entering into God's pathos. You are voluntarily partaking in what God feels about poverty and injustice. During your fast, Whenever you experience hunger, you think of God. You meditate on injustice in the world. At Van City, we're constantly talking about the first or, or the three goals of every disciple of Jesus. The first is to be with Jesus, and the second is what? To become like Jesus. And the third? To do what Jesus did. And I don't, I don't know if you guys recall, but these goals are actually staggered in order, we think. When we understand how Jesus feels about poverty and justice, when we adopt his mentality and his disposition and his paradigm, we become like him. Then we will be compelled to do what he did, to act on our heart's desire, which is a new heart and a new mind. This happens through practice. It happens in concert with the Holy Spirit, who really does all the heavy lifting in forming you into the image of God. Yes, you have work to do, but the Holy Spirit comes along and he does the hard part of that transformation for you. Remember, to follow Jesus is not only a set of intellectual beliefs, you know, and a system of ethics. Those are both there for sure. But you are apprenticing a master, you are to become like your master and then take up his work in the world, just like any apprentice would do to any master that they follow. This is about much more than following rules based purely on a system of belief. Because there are things that you and I do compelled solely by belief and nothing else. Without empathy, without a sense of personal connectedness to the thing itself. You know what I mean? Like when I forgo sugar, for example... It's almost entirely because I believe intellectually in the harmful effects of too much sugar uh, or that, you know, my wife Abby will give me a hard time if I indulge in too much sugar. I, I don't really feel terribly passionate about bringing down big sugar, you know? Um, I, don't, I don't have it out for sugar. I'm, I'm bummed about the whole thing, frankly. Um, but on the other hand... Like uh, me personally, and before you freak out, I'm not saying you have to do this. Me personally, I'm a vegan. For, so for me personally, it has, that has nothing to do with health benefits. 
though those are numerous and nice. I appreciate it. But that has to do with a deeply personal conviction about the ethical treatment of God's creation. So I got there by years of entering into this nightmare world of like farm, you know, factory farm documentaries, exposing myself to appalling conditions and cruelty. And I felt something inside me begin to shift. And I just said, you know what, for me personally, I just can't do it anymore. I can't be a part of it anymore. And thing is, you and I are inundated with images and statistics about poverty. There are probably at this very moment, you know, someone in the room who uh, is part of a nonprofit or has been a part of a nonprofit. At this very moment, it stands to reason there's probably one or two people sleeping on our porch. That happens almost every Sunday. Um, you'll have to go around them when you go out of the building. We know of innumerable nonprofits. If I asked, chances are most of you would say like, oh, I know about this one and this one. We know about awareness generating campaigns. We've seen the images. We've seen the documentaries. And little by little, it piles up to the degree that it's hard to feel much of anything aside from a lingering sense that, yeah, that's bad. It shouldn't be that way, but I don't have much empathy left in me. And fasting doesn't fix all that as much as it acknowledges our need for more than commercials to enter into a world that we can scarcely understand. You are saying by the act of fasting that it's gonna take a lot more for me than to see another image of another starving child to actually understand or begin to understand how God feels about this. Now I wanna be clear, we could and likely will at some point do entire teachings, entire teaching series on what it means to do justice and care for the poor in a more uh, hands-on, pragmatic sense. This is a series about fasting and about the justice, solidarity, and holiness derived from the practice of fasting. And of course, just minutes ago, I talked about the journey of our church, not just listening to talks about Jesus and the Bible, but putting what we learn into practice. So don't check out, hang with me for just a couple more minutes before we end tonight. I wanna take these massive concepts Justice, solidarity, holiness, fasting, and I want to talk about how we plan to put this into practice as a church. And I want to begin with, immediate, with uh, you know, the immediate pushback to what I'm sure some of you are feeling at the moment, which is, uh, you know, you're probably thinking, I can't do this. Somewhere, somewhere in there, part of you or some of you are thinking, that all sounds well and good, but man, to put yourself through something, to stand in solidarity with the poor, understand God's pathos, that's not me. I'm so far back in my journey of discipleship. I can't do this. So I'm going to say emphatically to each and every one of you who are a disciple of Jesus, regardless of if you became one yesterday or have been at it for years, you can do this. You can absolutely do this wherever you are at in your journey of discipleships. And, and perhaps one or two of you uh, will be called or are called to found a nonprofit. One or two of you, maybe, maybe no one, I don't know, in a room this small, are called to like actually move to the developing world or to serve food at a food shelter full time or to start an orphanage or work there, whatever it might be. Most of you, on the other hand, are called to no such thing, really. For you, what we often describe as justice work will look quite different. And frankly, so will the idea of holiness. Every disciple of Jesus is to become like Jesus, absolutely, part of what it means to be sanctified, to become holy. But God will not override your personality and your passions and your calling in the process, at least not all of them. The things that he's designed in you for good will actually stay there and become truer and more evident. If you think back to our practice of discovering your identity and calling, God has crafted you with unique and specific ability and tenacity for something. 
So for some of you, that translates to Compassion International or World Vision, translates to moving to Uganda or to starting awareness around mosquito nets, whatever it might be. But for others, that translates to design work or engineering or teaching or making coffee or raising children. All of us, all of us in that paradigm, whether we start the nonprofit or we raise kids, we are all called as disciples of Jesus to stand in solidarity with the poor, just like God does. All of us are to grow in holy concern for those who have little. All of us are to mature in radical generosity, sacrificing for the sake of those who go without. But the practical outworking of our discipleship will look different person to person. Don't compare yourself to an archetype, to an unrealistic expectation, and then check out. Instead, begin to ask and to pray and to dream about what this will look like realistically for you in your season of life, in your setting, in your time, in your place, in your calling, and then consider giving it a shot. This week, you'll gather with your community and head to practicingtheway.org. If you're not yet in a community, or you know, like I always say, you're listening to this in the future online, you can actually get a couple of friends together and give it a shot just the same. For many of you, I hope this will be your second week uh, spending a day fasting with your community, so you'll have a bit more of a handle on it. At least you've tried it once. Of course, we don't expect that you're already an expert. If you did it last week and you're like, oh, I didn't get any of it and it was really hard, that's fine. You've, you've begun the journey. Most of us, I think, are still on the journey of figuring out. Most of us feel that way as though we're like, whoa, what is this? It's weird. I'm hungry. So you'll set aside a day to fast, preferably all together as a community, but, you know, whatever works for you. Uh, traditionally in the um, in the Bible and in the early church, fasting was done for a 12-hour period, so you, skip, you essentially skip two meals. Um, but you do whatever works. It can be done for longer. It can be done for a shorter amount of time. Work it out with your community. And this week, when you fast, we're inviting you to try two things. First is to remember the poor. Each time, it's really that simple. You feel a pang of hunger. Each time you feel, uh, what do they call it, hangry, you know? That came up a lot in our community, talking about, well, what about hangry <laughs> or I don't know, is hangry a noun or a state of mind? Whatever it is. What about hangry <laughs> like it's a person? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> tangent. Uh, when you feel hangry or restless because you want food, um, and that happens even if you feel like, man, I can go without eating, that's fine. But when you know that you voluntarily, it just occurs to you, trust me. Um, seize that moment and turn your heart and mind toward God. Or in just a pragmatic sense, go, whoa, man, I'm so hungry. Okay, wait, let me remember God. Turn my awareness to God, my attention to God. Think of the staggering amount of men and women and children in the world who suffer because of poverty, who go without, and it's not up to them, and invite God to reveal to you his grief over their pain. That's not about beating yourself down. It's not about guilt or shame or anything like that. It's about empathy. It's about understanding what God feels and identifying with God. So say, man, all I am is hungry right now. That's uncomfortable. God, show me a little bit of your discomfort over injustice in the world and invite God to do that. And then you pray, pray on a small scale in a specific sense for people and families that are in need that you know personally. Chances are a lot of you might know those. Pray on a wide scale for people and families that you'll never meet, just causes that you're aware of, uh, catastrophes that you're aware of. Cry out to God on behalf of the poor and the vulnerable. And then secondly, do justice. This is an incredibly simple approach, well within the realm of capability for the vast majority of us. We're going to invite you to estimate the cost of the meals that you've given up 
on your day of fasting and use that money for justice. If that's a small amount, so be it. Doesn't matter. If it's just a few groceries, you know, if you're like me and you're, you know, spend $3 on lunch or whatever it is, that's fine. It's $3. Tally it up and use that money for justice. You can do this as a community and sort of all pool your funds together or you can do it individually, whatever. Take that money, however big or small the total may be, and give it to someone in need. That could be a charity, it could be a nonprofit, a cause that you know and believe in. Uh, maybe you live or work in an area in which you know you'll likely encounter a person in need during your week. It's a great opportunity to buy someone lunch, uh, which I know is scary and risky for a lot of us, but it can be done, trust me. Maybe you know of someone in your life for whom a financial gift or even a purchase meal would be gratefully received where they're at right now. Chances are, if you're a community, you do know someone like that. And I would really implore you guys to consider those within your own community in, in the small Van City community sense and within Van City Church. You know, the New Testament places this tremendous value and concern on the family of God looking out for one another. In some senses, even prioritizing that commitment. Look at this passage from Galatians. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good for all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. If there's a need that you can meet in your own community or your own church in Van City, if that's the church you call home, Try to meet it with the money that you would have spent or contribute to it with the money you would have spent on food. If the funds you put together don't quite get you going, that's fine, it's something. Or you can consider doing more, saying, hey, this got us halfway. What if we just drew out of our pockets to get the rest of the way there? You can also do justice by giving the very generous gift of your time. Your community might consider spending the time you would spend eating together at a food kitchen or a rescue mission. Uh, our friend Levi, who's leading worship tonight, was just up here a week or so ago uh, talking about an opportunity like that to serve as his community does on a regular basis. You can connect with him. He'll be around with resources that he can give you. Even if it's just the one time that you would be fasting, consider doing something actively, connect with Levi or look online. It was a big internet. All of this... In all of this, I want to invite you to frame your time with a beautiful consideration. Don't go to guilt. Don't go to shame. Don't go to feel beaten down like, oh, man, I should feel worse about poor people. Nothing like that. But consider this with this beautiful, beautiful frame of reference. You are setting out to sacrifice your comfort, sacrifice your resources for the sake of someone else. This is what God does for you. And again, that's not, that's not at all a guilt trip or a stern warning or like, hey, you should, it's the least you could do. That's to compel you to enthusiasm, to compel you to worship. You get to be like God. You get to know God better. You get to see what God feels and feel what God feels. And no, you may not experience all that on your very first attempt, but that's what practicing is all about. There's a reason that the early church did this twice a week for hundreds of years. And the words of Paul from moments just prior, let us not become weary in doing good. So with that in mind, let's pray. We'll invite the Spirit to come and to speak.